All right, Steph, I've got a question for you. What's your favorite book of all time? Uh, obviously, you met her where? Oh, I thought you were going to say the Bible. Oh, oops. <laughs> oh. So what's your second favorite book of all time? You met her where? <laughs> <laughs> a distant second. Totally distant. It's a pretty good book. Sorry, God. It's still a pretty, pretty good book. But we're so excited. Where can people get our book? Honey? Okay, I know this. Uh, Amazon.com. Yes. Barnes & Noble. Yes, and? And our website, KevinStuff.com. And, and what happens if they buy it off our website? <gasps> what do they get? Uh, an autograph from us. Yes. Who wouldn't want that? Exactly. So, listeners, if you've already read the book, thank you so much. We've had such good feedback. One thing that helps us, if you can give us a review on Amazon.com, we would greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much, and thank you for listening. Hello, friends. Welcome to a very fun conversation we just had with Joe Serio, who tells some amazing stories about working with the Russian mafia. We hope you enjoy this episode of Tell Us a Good Story, Mafia Edition. Steph, are you ready for this, honey? Uh, Yes. We are about to get a history lesson, I believe, right now. And here's what's cool. This individual we're about to have a conversation with actually reached out to us. We didn't reach out to him. And I wish this would happen with everybody. All the time. All the time. Absolutely. Especially guests like this. Absolutely. So, ladies and gentlemen, our next guest holds a PhD in criminal justice, is a full-time professional speaker, trainer, and author, this man wrote the critically acclaimed book, Investigating the Russian Mafia, and will be profiled in an upcoming episode of 48 Hours on CBS. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to tell us a good story, Dr. Joe Serio. Hello, sir. Thank you. Thank you. How are you? We are great. So good. I appreciate (laughs) you reaching out to us. You are one of actually the few people we have said yes to. Who have reached out to us. With good (laughs) reason when people hear his stories. How'd you come across our podcast and started listening to a a couple episodes, I guess? Because you interviewed a friend of mine. Okay. Joe McCarville, who's a 911 dispatcher. Yes. Posted his session. And I follow, whenever Joe does a podcast interview, I take a look and see, okay, are these people I would want to talk to? Can I then talk to Joe and see if I can get connected? And... I mean, you guys, you know, you guys are just ridiculous. I, <laughs> I, I started listening to your, I went and listened to his interview. And okay. then I started listening to more interviews because of you guys, because of the way you are. And I was like, hey, this could be fun. So I, because I drive a lot, I just started listening to you guys like crazy. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to tell you a quick story right off Please. the bat, if, if you don't mind. Oh, I would love it. Tell us a good okay. story, Joe. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. That's what I guess so. Um, so this never, ever happens. This week, I had to drive to, uh, to Houston, which is three hours from where I live in Austin. Okay. And I missed my exit on the way to Houston, and I missed my exit back on the interstate on the way from Houston back home. And it's your fault. <laughs> because, <laughs> because, because I was so engrossed. I, like, really? I was insanely... On the way to Houston, I was listening to... 
Chief Swanson. Oh, yes. yes. Ridiculous. Interview. Amazing. And, you know, and, and because I come out of criminal justice, and right. a lot of training with law enforcement, and I work with a lot of chiefs, like he was, he really had me, right? On the way back, I was listening to Joe Didmar. Oh. And I was crying half, half the way home. You know, I'm from Long Island. I had friends who died in World Trade Center. So I was listening to his account. Yeah. And it was just so gripping. And it was just so, it was so moving. And, and because of, you know, I was living on Long Island when that happened. So, so I had my own connection to it all. Um, and the last thing I want to tell you about, about what I'm going to blame you for okay. is Pastor Micah. <laughs> who I just laughed and laughed and laughed through that episode because the thing that he does with you is what a friend of mine and I used to do with each other. We used to find a way to embarrass each oh. other. And Joe. My, my friend was a, a lady cop. And I just remember, and he brought back his memories for me. One day in Chicago, we, um, we were at lunch and I just slammed my hands on the table at the restaurant in the cafe. And I stood up and I said with a full voice, you did what <laughs> with my brother? And she, and we would just do that. Like we both did it to each other at the drop of a hat with zero warning. And it was just, and he reminded me of that so much that I just laughed between that episode and the episode with your sister. Oh my God. Oh, Joe. I just laughed at the show. It just, and last thing I want to say, please, you guys, I hope, I really, really, truly, and deeply hope that you appreciate what you're doing because you are so fresh and so real and so impactful that, you know, you're just sitting around having conversations, but the conversations are changing people's lives. And they're really, they're crazy emotional in some cases. They're crazy funny and ridiculous in other cases. And it's just, like I haven't looked forward to listening to a podcast as much. I only oh. listen to three podcasts. That's it. Oh. Yours and two others. And so just thank you. Thank you. Oh my gosh. Well, you just made my wife cry. Oh Joe. my gosh. That was amazing. Because you guys are amazing. Oh, thank well, thank you, you. Joe. Thank you so much. As you can imagine, right? This this has not been easy for us, right? To start this, Joe. Our background is nothing in the media, journalism, not, n our background is, is complete opposite, right? Mm -hmm. Steph's a registered nurse. I'm a CPA. I'm a finance guy. So for us to put ourselves out there, right, and have conversations and tell these stories, like, publicly that are embarrassing, <laughs> right? And mostly it's embarrassing to me, not you. Um, <laughs> it, it, it took some risk, right? It took some courage. It took some faith. So to hear that... Um, Man, that, that just made our day. So thank, thank you. Thank you. Good. Well, Joe, that's all we wanted to talk to you about today. So thank you. I really appreciate your time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I need to tell something real quick. So, you guys, this man's background is phenomenal. And I know we're getting to it, but he was involved with the Russian mafia. All right. So, as soon as, right before he gets on, and I've already talked to Joe about this, I was like, babe how are we going to understand this man? Like, are we going to be able to like understand him? an interpreter? Can we, do we need an interpreter? And he's like, babe, 
he's from Texas. He's from Texas. I'm like, oh, <laughs> oh, okay. So the Joe comes on and starts talking. I'm like, oh, he's totally American. Okay, yeah, he's, he's fluent he's English. But That's then he good. all of a sudden starts speaking Russian. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> so take us back, okay? You started studying Russian in college and then later moved to Russia for a period of time. How, how did you get involved with, with that right in college? <laughs> it's, a, it's really a silly story. I, um, I was afraid of everything okay. growing up. And I was interested in everything, which is a really weird combination because it meant that I was totally paralyzed, right? So, so sophomore year, I had to pick one last class to fill out my class schedule. And there was no way. I just couldn't choose. So I shut my eyes and I twirled my finger in the air and I put my finger down on the paper. I swear to God, for the rest of my life, this one decision affected everything from that day in 1983 up until now. Everything. Everything. Wow. My finger landed on a class called Who Are the Soviets? And it was literature, politics, history, culture of the Soviet Union, and everything except language. So uh, that summer, my father, uh, who I, I did not have a good relationship with my father, and we only had like two real conversations, like a dialogue, real dialogues. And one of them was that day, and he said, you know what? Um, as an immigrant, he understood the importance of language. He said, if you want to have any chance of, of understanding these people, you should start studying Russian language right now. And I had no idea how ridiculously hard that was going to be. And so I, I dived right in. I got hooked on it. And I just kept going. And I just, when college ended, I went to Moscow and studied there for six months. And it was just one thing after another after another. And just door after door after door just kept, they just, they just kept opening. Jeez. That's amazing stuff. How he chose his career in life is exactly how you chose your husband in life. Hey, you much. just closed your eyes, eyes. pointed <laughs> to the phone book, and there I was. It, was it, lucky it was impacted you. the rest of your life. <laughs> you and Joe, lucky, luckiest people alive. <laughs> I have never heard of that one time, Joe. I have heard of people opening a Bible and like just putting their finger on something like, oh my gosh, that speaks to my life, what I'm going through right now. But I've never heard of that type of career path. Yeah, I mean, that, that's... That's incredible. So when you went to the Soviet Union, what did you do there? So the first time I went in 86 for three weeks as a tourist, and then I was there in 87 for six months as a student studying. And then in 90, uh, I, I moved from New York to Chicago. I worked for I worked for the vice chancellor of the University of Illinois, who he sent me for about nine months. And I worked in national police headquarters of the Soviet police. And where was that? Was that Moscow or somewhere else? That was in Moscow, yeah. In Moscow. Like so, a half a mile from the Kremlin. Oh, my gosh. So was what was the biggest culture shock then for you? And granted, this is back in the 80s, right? Yeah. So from going from Chicago, United States, over to Moscow, in the middle yeah. of the Cold War, what, what was the biggest change, I guess, shock for you? Yeah, I was, um, I was really shocked because, you know, I grew up, I grew up fairly fairly um, sheltered and, and being, you know, from a large family, but I was one of the younger ones. So I was really sheltered. And then I get over there and I'm thinking, this is a superpower, but it's kind of a dump. I mean, really? it's just, 
I was really shocked. I'll give you one quick little example. And this, this totally blew my mind. In the park, they had a Pepsi machine. And so we're in superpower land and I'm walking in the park and I see these people with um, at, the, at the soda machine with a cup. And they press the, the nozzle and the soda comes out and they stand there and drink it. Then they turn it upside down and it activates kind of spray wash and they leave the cup there for the next person. And I'm like, oh. no, no, not going to happen. Not drinking out of that cup. And so that just, it's kind of a simple little example, right? But it was like, is this where I landed? How can this possibly be a superpower if, you know, the streets are crumbling, the cars are all the same, basically three different models of cars, essentially. The weather is ridiculously cold. Um, it was really brutal. But what happened very quickly was I started, I started understanding the people and what they've been through. And what they've been through is just, is ridiculous. It's insane. KGB, Gulag, you know, work camps, labor camps, um, Stalin, World War II, the amount of sacrifice that these people went through is just absolutely staggering. And they treat foreigners like royalty. Oh, because really? Like, come oh, I wasn't into our homes, cover, They cover their table with food and, and drink. And like, it's almost a, a shame for them if they don't treat a foreign guest really well. Even Americans back then. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, and especially if you, if you try to speak a couple of words of their language, they're like, oh, awesome. Come on in. You know, let's talk. It was amazing. It was really amazing. I wasn't expecting that, Joe. I wasn't either. I, I didn't think they would be kind to you. I thought there would be like this preconceived notion because you were an American. But it was the polar opposite of that. Yeah. So They're very for- clear. They're very clear about the difference between the people and the government. And they said, we want your life. We want your style with your lifestyle. We just don't want your politics. So they didn't like American politics. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Interesting. It's a very complicated and long story. Yeah. So for listeners, how would you describe the Russian mafia organized crime back in the 80s? Yeah. When you were investigating it and knee deep in uh, the details and the research of that. Yeah, it was, um, it was pretty, it was pretty crazy. These guys, first of all, we have to get rid of this idea that mafia is just gangsters, right? It's, it's gangsters and it's government employees and it's businessmen. It's mafia is like a state of mind. Okay. It's like thuggish gangsterish state of mind. So you could get a, by the early nineties, there were people who were a businessman and a politician and a bona fide gangster all in the same person. Oh gosh. So, um, so that was, that for me, that was weird to kind of get exposed to that. And then to realize that the entire place essentially runs on corruption on what we, what we would call corruption pay off. I bribed more cops. And <laughs> I mean, we constantly, because they would pull you over to shake you down. Oh, like a cop pulled us over, me and my driver pulled us over for for going through a red light at a place where there was no traffic light. Really? So it was just that corrupt. Everything's a negotiation, right? We got out of it, 
because my guy used to be a traffic cop. So he, he said, dude, if you're going to pull us over, at least play the game right. Like, make sure there's a light there. And we found out that that particular cop in that particular case wasn't even from Moscow. He just came from the countryside to make some extra money. Oh, no. What? <laughs> brought his own police vehicle with him. Steph, I love your faces. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, here's the thing. Yeah, people think Steph is playing like she's like very animated. No, no, no. This is her real life. This is her waking up in the morning. Like she's ready to go. Like, no, no this isn't an act, people. Like, this is her real life. <laughs> I'm like so ingrained in this. Okay. That's incredible. So literally, constantly, you just have to deal with people trying to pull one on you. You got to deal with bribes. Like, how much, like, how much would you have to, like, give cops? Like, five bucks? 20 bucks? Like, no, what would it, would, it be? It would, yeah, it would turn out to the equivalent. Back then, it was like two, three dollars. It wasn't it was not that a big deal. Like, it wasn't a big deal for us as Americans. Yeah. Um, so it might have been, you know, 25 rubles or 50 rubles or something. But it was nothing it was for us. It wasn't that expensive to live. It was uh-huh. just an enormous hassle. And, yeah. and then gains started, right? So they would say things like, oh, you don't want to pay. I think I smell some alcohol in your breath. Let me get out this needle so I can take a blood test. Okay, here's the money. You know, really? It's all what? Just games, just games. So, did everyone want to be a cop then? So you could get those bribes, get those payoffs. You know what? It it didn't matter, right? So you can either be a gangster and steal the money. You can be a cop and and bribe people, or you or take bribes, or you just be a government employee and take bribes from there. Like every every. Let me let me tell you this. When I was there in '87. My friends and I bribed our way into an empty restaurant, right? So you would think, okay, I got to bribe my way into a full restaurant empty, empty. To, get, to get a good seat, right? At the trendy restaurant, whatever. We bribed our way into empty restaurants because the people in the restaurant, the waiters, whatever, they were going to make the same amount of money no matter whether they're serving people or not serving people because the government owned everything. Right. So I'm going to pay you your 200 rubles a month regardless of who comes and whether you make money as a, as a restaurant. So they said, okay, you know what? We're going to keep the door locked and we'll just let in people who give us bribes. So the guy unlocks the padlock from the inside, opens the door kind of his body width and says, okay, 10 rubles. Like, wait, what? He said, 10 rubles. You got to pay us 10 rubles to get in. And I'm looking through the glass. I'm like, there's nobody in there. What are you talking about? So here's the bottom line. If you're a gatekeeper and you control something and if somebody wants it, you're not going to give it up for free. So if you want it badly enough, then it's going to cost you 10 rubles. You want to come in this restaurant? I don't care if you do or not. So if you want to pay the 10 rubles, if not, screw off. Gosh. Oh my goodness. So everything, really everything, everything. So yeah. how many people, so going back to the Russian mafia, Joe, yeah. how many people do you think was infiltrated in that? I mean, hundreds of thousands of people in, in Russia as part of this mafia, this organized crime? Uh, so from a gangster perspective, from a kind of a clean mafia sense, uh, yeah, there were, there were I, I, no one knows the real numbers, but right. yeah, 100,000, lots, lots of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were gangs everywhere because, because of everything I just told you, the state runs everything, and they didn't really care about consumer demand. 
So everything was in short supply because all the resources were going like to the military, whatever. So there are no bla- there are no bags, for example. When I went to the supermarket, no plastic bags, no brown bags, no bags at all, period. So after the Soviet Union collapsed, there would be a mafia that grew up around supplying bags. There would be the shoe mafia and the furniture mafia and the meat mafia and anything the with a shortage, mafia, right? Because there, that's the demand. Yeah. And if you have a demand, then you somebody's going to pay money, right? Right. So if I can control all those all those bottlenecks of demand and supply and demand, then I can, you know, I'll make a lot of money at anything because the whole system was like this. So if you ask about, okay, what was Russian mafia, especially compared to the United States? In New York City, where I'm from, you'd have the mafia controlling stuff like garbage, uh, concrete, like the concrete industry in New York City in the 70s and 80s, just wildly controlled by the mafia. Okay, now take that and apply it to virtually everything. Everything. Across 11 time zones. Oh, really? Oh, Russia's Soviet Union is enormous. It's huge. Let me give you a crazy, just one crazy little thing. It took me as long, if not longer, to fly from Moscow to the east end of Russia as it took to fly from New York to Moscow. Across the Atlantic, across Europe, across Eastern Europe into Moscow, took the same amount of time for me to fly from New York to Moscow as it did to fly across Russia. Oh, my gosh. Isn't that insane? I didn't didn't realize that. that. I didn't realize that either. Uh, the place is, is just totally mind-boggling. It's just the whole, the whole thing about everything How about that, that place is. is just mind-blowing. Oh, my word. That is huge. This is crazy. You had a question. I have so many questions. This is so much fun. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, okay. So... I think when Kevin was doing the research, you've been in like Russian prisons, right? Yeah. Right. Yes. 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 Go. Let's hear wait, some wait, stories. Okay, wait, wait. Let me let wait, me okay. let me let me give a little context. Okay. Here, okay. So part of Joe's background, right, is he has helped produce three documentaries on Russian crime, including going inside Russian prisons for a, telepro- uh, a television program that was on A and E. So, not only has he even get investigated the Russian mafia, which I want to hear another good story about I that. I totally do, too. I what, have so many stories. What were the prisons like there, I guess, compared to the United States? And in my mind, I'm thinking, like, is the United States a country club compared to what they're dealing with over there in, in Russia? Yeah, so, you know, um, in some ways, the answer is yes. And Russians will tell you that. They're like, hey, arrest me. Arrest me in New York. That's totally fine. <laughs> You think this prison's going to bother me? You have no idea where I came from. Yeah, that, that's the mentality. So the prisons that I went into were, were in Moscow. So they weren't even the big kind of labor camps out in Siberia. Um, they were just straight up prisons the way we would think about them, right? And um, we went into some really good ones, some relatively new ones. We went to some really lousy ones. And lousy ones would be something like a cell built for 20, 25 people, like a big dormitory cell, would have 60 people in it. And they would sleep in shifts and their legs are all swollen from standing for two thirds of the day. And there'd be lice and tuberculosis and, you know, whatever else. So really insane, insane stuff. Were you scared in any of these prisons? 
No. No. Oh, because I was with people who, you know, I was with the warden. I was with whatever. Yeah. I mean, well, some some scary people in there. I bet. Oh, well, yeah. yeah. But no, it wasn't wasn't scary. But let's think about this. So, yeah, you're with the warden, but would they, like, can the prisoners be giving the warden, like, bribes? Like, does that happen? You know, Stephanie, I'd like to say that very quickly I've made you so cynical. <laughs> but it's a... <laughs> But it's a really awesome question because, yes, I went into one prison uh, about 100 miles outside Moscow, and the warden was super open and very frank. And he said, look, one of the big bosses controls half this prison, and he gets what he wants. And that means sometimes they bring drugs into the prison, they bring alcohol into the prison, they bring women into the prison, whatever, because this is the guy, this is kind of the godfather who's controlling half of these inmates and keeping the place quiet. Uh, keeping you know? peace. Yeah. What time period were you there, Joe? In I Russia. S- first trip was in 86, studying in 87. And then I spent most of the nineties. Okay. Um, I went back 2004, 2008 and I was there. I went there twice last year. Okay. Just to, <laughs> that's how weird I am. I went there just to hang around. I just love to, <laughs> Visit friends and hang out for a couple of weeks. See his friends in the prison. <laughs> See if they're still there. So you were there before the wall and after the wall. Yeah. Right? So yeah. how was that the difference between those both of those situations? With the culture? So yes. Bef- Thank you. Before the wall was, um, was predictable starting to become unpredictable. I went there less than a year after Gorbachev came to power. So he starts changing stuff, right? And so the changes start happening. And when the change happens in 1990-91, the Soviet Union collapses at the end of 91, all hell breaks loose. And for a few years, you're just in this massive limbo of activity, gang activity, people trying to figure out how to survive because they took all the, the controls off prices and, and all that. Oh, so, and the store shelves were empty. Store shelves were empty. So you're like, okay, how am I going to survive today? How am I going to eat today? And I had those myself because I was being taken care of, but I wasn't being taken care of every day. So I grew up in a middle-class home. We were fine, you know, well taken care of. I went to bed hungry when I was living in Russia. And I would see people, you'd see people just like on the street saying, okay, I have a pencil. Who wants to buy my pencil? I have a glass. Who wants to buy my glass? And people would be standing there with one bottle of beer, a pair of stockings. And pe- and these people were like Jeez. 60, 70 years old. Survival. Just pure survival. If you want to summarize Russia and the Soviet Union in one word, it's survival. This COVID thing, you know, all the stuff that the drama and trauma we've been through the last nine months, it's, it's nothing. It's really nothing. It's traumatic for us, but for them, it's like we, yeah, we went through that height of no toilet paper. Take that. Oh, gosh. Yeah, yeah. we went through that for 10 years. You know, we went through right. that for our whole lifetime. So, you know, it's all relative. And they've, they've been through just massive amounts of that kind of stuff. So with you, it would be whenever you see somebody... It's almost like immediately, what can this person do to help me, right? Like versus yeah, get yeah. to know them. No, no, no. What does he have that I need? Like I've got to barter with anybody and everybody here. 
Yeah, so here's that's a really interesting observation because it leads to this other this other aspect about them. They because of their history, like with KGB and and spying and informing and prison and all that stuff, they don't trust anybody. So this network is going to be really tight and small. It's going to be you and me and Steph because the three of us grew up together right. and we've known each other since kindergarten. Okay. And I know your shoe size and her shoe size and you work in the, in the meat shop. So if you see a good piece of meat, you're going to steal it and put it yeah. under the counter for me. And I'm going to bring you a pair of new shoes and right, all this. Yep. Because if you say the wrong thing to the wrong person, you can get carted off. In the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s. And if you grow up where everybody has a, a person they know, a relative, a cousin, an uncle, who was carted off in the middle of the night and sent to the gulag, then you're going to keep your mouth shut. And the, one of the sayings they have is, a word spoken is a shot fired. Oh. You, know, you got to watch oh, yeah. what you say. And you can be swept away easy gosh so joe earlier you talked about living in fear right growing up how did that how was that impacted how did that translate to now living in this type of environment and most normal people would be then fearful of everything right mm -hmm. what did you have to do just to survive the fear of every day of what you got to do just to get through the day yeah, so it didn't translate that way for me. Okay. Um, my fear was, I grew up in a family of 14. I'm the ninth of 12 kids. Um, my father was a Sicilian volcano who grew up in the Great Depression. He was an immigrant from Sicily. He was nine years old when the Depression happened. So that stereotypical mindset of work, 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 and you must get great grades. And a 97, you got a 97. What happened to the other three points? Like, I grew up with that. Okay, that's intense. And, and on top of that, I'm the ninth one. <clears throat> the oldest one is a priest. The second oldest went to Johns Hopkins undergraduate, University of Pennsylvania Dental School. Oh boy. The next one was a dental hygienist who could play 20 instruments at the age of 20. The next one was a lawyer who went to the finals of the moot court competition. You know, High that, bar. that scenario. Yeah. By the time it came down to me, I just totally froze. Like, for decades, I was just like, I can't. I can't compete with any of that stuff. And, and we basically had a kind of a no praise environment. So, you know, it was all the, all the discipline and the, you know, what happened to the other three points and clean that kitchen and do a better job of it without the, Hey, you're my son. I'm proud of you and all that. So it was, <laughs> tell some people, I was less afraid of the communists than I was of my father. So <laughs> going like, to the Soviet yeah. Union was kind of easy. Just getting away. Yeah, that was fun. That was, yeah. Did you have a, I almost want to say like a lack of trust once you came back to America? Did you have, did you struggle with trusting people because of what you just went through in Russia or were you able to flip a switch when you came back? A couple of things happened. That's uh, one funny thing, weird thing that happened was when I left the Soviet Union in 87 after being there for six months, I came back to go shopping, I was in the I was in the supermarket, and I stood in the cereal aisle, and I just stood in the cereal aisle, and I and I just stood in the cereal aisle, and I couldn't make a decision because there's you know 50 kinds of, of yeah. Cheerios for crying out loud, right. and 
in Russia, there was none of that. So my circuits got overloaded with all this choice. And I just ended up walking out of the supermarket with nothing, empty-handed. And then on top of that, I, it wasn't a question of trusting, not trusting. It was a question of whether I ever talked about it. Because what you find out is that within two minutes, people are like, oh, tell me about Russia. Tell me about the Soviet Union. And then you start telling them, like, okay, after two minutes, they're good. They're like, okay, that, well, that's nice. What's on TV? You know, and... Right. And and I and I knew they couldn't they couldn't get it right or they couldn't understand what I was talking about, so I never talk about it. I haven't you know I have Russian friends that I talk to regular basis and they they get me and where I'm coming from. But uh, this book that I'm finishing up now is the first. I mean, I did the investigating the Russian mafia book ten years ago, but this book is is the first full expression of all the stories and the thoughts that I had and what working with the cops and investigating the Russian mafia and being involved with people over there and the social part and the craziness part of it. And just said, you know what, let me just tell stories. I did the whole book is just a book of stories about my experiences over there. So you mentioned uh, this hit home with me. A word is like shots fired, mm-hmm. right? So when you were getting acclimated, to the culture, and you are even hanging out with potentially mafia guys, was there any situation where you got your words mixed up, you said something that came across the wrong way, and you're like, uh-oh, I could be in trouble here? Um, not really, because they knew. I mean, here's the thing about my experience. They all, I mean, they knew what was going on. You know, I'm American, obviously, and and I look pretty young. I mean, people don't expect that I'm as old as I am, but I, and I looked pretty young back then and they just all took me under their wing, like their little brother. Really? They're like, Hey, let's show them this. Let's show them that. They, they sneak me into May Day Parade. I march across Red Square. They sneak me into a secret factory. They showed me, you know, hidden, you know, lodges and A-frame chalets in the middle of the forest that no Russian knows about. I mean, they took me to all these places that, you know, I'm I'm under under a stadium, and underneath the stadium is a sauna and a bathhouse that the cops use. And I'm out there hanging out one time, drinking vodka and in the sauna. And upstairs is this ice capades, ice rink or whatever. And Boris Yeltsin is upstairs watching the show, and I'm hanging out down here getting drunk with these cops. And it's just, yeah, you know what, Kevin, the that look that you like that. Right, like, it happened all the time. It was just like one after another after another. My editor reading my book is like, "Wait, what? Are you kidding? Wait, me? what? Wait, what? How is this? All these weird things are just they keep happening, and they're all they're interconnected." Steph, can you imagine Joe showing up to, you know, the police department to give a speech? He's like, "Okay, listen, guys, let me tell you what I've seen." <laughs> Over the past 30 years, what you guys are dealing with is amateur hour compared to what I saw back in the 80s during the Cold War. Let, like, me, tell you, let me tell you something. Going into to speak to a room of cops, I've never been a cop. Right. And, and But you understand there are brotherhoods. And like the Marines, the military, that's one kind of brotherhood. People who lived in Soviet Union, that's another kind of brotherhood. And cops is one of the biggest brotherhoods we have in the country. So they look at me and they're like, Oh, you've never been a cop. I don't need to listen to you. I don't need to take you seriously. And so then I start telling them a couple of stories about Russia. 
And they're like, okay, you're yep. fine. You know, <laughs> we'll listen to you. There's a credibility right there. Works. Yeah. Have, when you were in Russia, did you go to any of those camps? It was like isolation camps? No, I never did. Um, I'm not even sure if I would have been allowed to. It was hard enough to get into the prisons. Now, Joe, I'm drawing a blank here. Did, when did Chernobyl take place? April of 86. So were you there then during that time period? You know, it's funny. Um, I tried to go there. And my father said, "You're not going there." And it, and it wasn't even it wasn't even Chernobyl yet. It was it was supposed to be my first trip to the Soviet Union. Okay. And at that age, in my naivete, I was like, "It's this young young people's trip." To he's like, "That's communist party propaganda. You're not going." You know, but I got I, this brochure here. It's got really cool pictures on it, Dad. <laughs> that is exactly the way it went down. And. And I was pissed. And I was just like, I just want to go. And it's like, you're not going. Um, and of course he was right. And he, you know, he was right about, he was right about all the stuff that he, you know, he unlectured us about. Okay. So I want to go through the list of things you sent me. Now for guests, we always ask them, Hey, are there any stories off the top of your head that you think would be fun to share? And you gave me a, a handful of, of a items. A lot. Here, right? I love this. So, you have something about Nancy Reagan's motorcade back in the day. Can you share that story with us, Joe? Yeah. Um, a friend worked on her staff in the White House. They were coming to Chicago and he said, hey, how'd you like to be in Nancy, Nancy Reagan's motorcade? And I said, sure, I got nothing better to do. And I, I drove to the airport. I met them. I jumped in the motorcade and my friend said, okay, listen, when we get to the Drake Hotel in downtown Chicago, they're going to pop the trunk on her limousine. She's going to get out and walk up the, the kind of these majestic steps of the front of the Drake. And you're going to get out of your vehicle and run to the limousine. And the only thing in the trunk is going to be her evening gown for the function tonight. So you go get that and carry it draped across your arms and fall in behind her and go up the steps and go with her up to the presidential suite and then just put the dress wherever it needs to be. And then later that night I attended the function and I was standing, you know, three feet from her. And we, she and Barbara Mandrell and I were just what? hanging around, chit-chatting. And um, before she went up on stage. I'll tell you what. I haven't heard the name Barbara Mandrell for a long time. That brings back memories, yep. Joe. Was Nancy sweet? Oh, of course. Yeah. Right. She just yeah. seemed sweet. It had to be. She just had seemed to be. so sweet. And I'm sure Barbara Mandrell was too. They're both, they're both sweet. I am sure when they have to be tough, they'd be tough. And when they had to be sweet, they're very sweet. Yeah. Joe, you could really have beefed that story up a little bit, saying like Barbara asked you to dance at the at the party <laughs> or you're taking shots at the bar with Nancy. Like you I could asked, really I asked for a number, she slapped me across the face. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, you know, it's funny. Awesome. It's funny, Kevin. Um I that never even crossed my mind ever. I need to beef up some of these stories. Yes. You know? I mean no, All the no one can. I've missed. Right, it's like that's not true. Prove it. <laughs> hey, can I prove tell you it? Wasn't. Just, just between us. Right. I've never been to Russia. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I've only watched this stuff on TV. I learned all this stuff. All this stuff from Rocky Four. <laughs> <laughs> what I said before we went on air, I was just gibberish. It wasn't even <laughs> Russian. <laughs> I just wanted to meet you guys. <laughs> 
So tell us about the book that you're finishing up and how you are getting profiled on 48 hours on, on CBS. What's what's coming up here uh, yeah. in the next couple of months for you, Joe? So the book uh, the book is is called Vodka Hookers and the Russian Mafia: okay. My Life in Moscow. <laughs> so, and I I don't know how I stumbled onto that title, but it's a killer. It's your attention. Like, everybody is like, I got to read that book, right? And it's basically the whole story from the from the finger twirling up until today, because the people I was investigating in the 1990s, their names came back up in the press over the last four years. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah. So, um, so then, so what happened? I'm not going to tell you the details of this case because it's pretty gruesome. But there was a case that happened this year, where let's just say that that somebody killed some people, and it turns out I knew the shooter. Oh, really? I knew him 20 years ago in Russia, and we worked together. So the story comes out in the media and the New York Times calls me and says, hey, are you Joe Serio who worked in Russia? I said, yeah. And then they told me the story about the situation. And I'm like, why are you telling me? And how did you get my name? And they said, he wrote a 2000 page manifesto and your name is in it like 10 times. No way. Yeah. Like this is how kooky my life is. It's just everything that I wrote on that list to you, it just keeps popping up. Weird stuff keeps popping so- up. So are you in so the witness the- protection program right now, Joe? Is that what is behind you? Maybe soon. Maybe <laughs> soon. Uh, so, so, um, so the New York Times calls and tells me that. And then 48 hours, hours calls me a few days later. And they, went, they we talked for a few hours and they said, you know, this is COVID, but are you willing to travel? I said, yeah, absolutely. So I went to LA and I did an interview with 48, 48 hours and talking about this guy and giving my kind of profile of, of what this guy was like. And the episode's going to come out, they think probably around January, February, 2021. Okay. Um, and that'll just be another kooky little event in my life. Oh my gosh. Good for you, Joe. With everything going on with like Russia right now and the US, like, do you believe any of it? With the election stuff? Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh my God, there's so much more than any of us even imagine. I have no evidence of collusion. Do I think the Russians impacted the election? Absolutely. Do I think that the Trumps and Russia are very close? Absolutely. Do I think he got money from the Russians? Tons of it. And I believe that they're all involved in at least, at the very least, a lot of money laundering. And Mm -hmm. the people who... Do you remember the Salt Lake City Olympics, Salt Lake Olympics? Yes. And there was a scandal around the figure skating that a medal was awarded to somebody who didn't deserve it, and it turned out it was fixed. Yes. So one of the that the guy who fixed it, like this specific man who fixed it, is somebody we investigated in Moscow. He was a major, major gangster, and lived in Trump Towers and used to run a major illegal. Uh, gambling operation out of Trump Tower, oh, gosh. Trump Towers, out of Trump, Trump Tower, and you know, and that that's the that's the uh, you know the tip that's the tip of the iceberg. There's, I believe, my personal opinion is that there's massive amounts of funny business to be nice about it that's gone on between the White House and Russia and just American politicians in general right. and Russia and you know whatever. 
scams and crimes and oh man i don't doubt man. that i don't doubt that at all i doubt it until i talked to joe and i totally believe joe no i don't so, i don't doubt that the underbelly of political stuff. i just i think the positive Kevin, i Kevin, try to see think. how this works <laughs> woman doesn't know me from a hole in the wall and she totally trusts me right. that's how this works <laughs> I'm so well, believable. It, it must just, be true. Obviously. Right? <laughs> that totally, Obvious, totally changed changes your opinion from what you saw on Facebook yesterday. See? Exactly. <laughs> if you don't mind, I want to say something else that's a little more broadly applicable. Please. My whole life was was based on fear. And if you look at the books that I wrote, the other the other books that I wrote on overcoming fear, emotional intelligence, public speaking, time management, all of those they revolve around the topic of fear. It's things that people are afraid of. And how do you deal with your fear to have your bigger life, your best life? Which is why I write those books. Russia was a side trip. I never wanted to go to Russia. Then my finger, my twirling finger decided that. I always wanted to be a speaker from the time I was 13, 14 years old. Hmm. And because of the way my life went, I understood after I collected all these stories that the one thing that keeps people from realizing and manifesting the life, the, the breath that God gave them for a lifetime, however many years that's going to be, is their primary task, is to realize the talents and to be of service to other people. That's why I wrote those books, so that you have a way to deal with your fear and, and to get outside of that comfort zone and that small space and to live a bigger life. So when I went to do the 48 hours interview, um, I was pretty nervous. They told me, they said 15 million people are going to watch this. Is that all right? Pressure. That's thank you for freaking me out. And so during the morning of the interview, I sat in my hotel bed and I went through the process that I've uh, developed for myself over the years. And one of them is just breathing, just breathe. Because we have to get through the stuff that freaks us out. Because that is the single thing that stops us from having a list like that. Right. Right. From having crazy experiences and figuring out what our purpose and calling in life is. So I do my breathing. And then I think uh, I, I, that day I was thinking about my mom who gave birth to 12 kids, was an amazing, amazing person. And she just passed away uh, last year. So I thought about her. I thought about the World Trade Center because I was still living on Long Island on 9-11. And the primary thing I think is, look, these people had a choice. Their choice was either to perish in a fire or jump out of an 85th floor window. There is nothing in my life that comes even remotely close to being that scary. Not even close. And so I went through this for 10, 15 minutes. And by the time the car came to the hotel to pick me up and took me to the interview site, I was ready to go. I bet. So let's do this. Because once you put things into perspective and you get proportion back in your head, because that's where fear lives. It's not real. It's inside our heads. And once you shrink the monster that you have stretched into the, be this just incredibly impossible thing to embrace, once you've shrunken that back down to size, you can do anything. The purpose of my life is to help people tap into their purpose. That's all I do. That's all I'm ever going to do for the rest of my life. I speak, I write, I train, I play music, I travel. Those are the only five things I ever do, and I will never do anything else. Because 
finally, in the last five years, that was the flame that I realized my life is about. That is so good, Joe. That is so good and a great way to end this conversation. Mm -hmm. So listeners, for more information about Joe, you can go to his Facebook page at Joe Serio. That's S-E-R-I-O. And I would highly recommend and encourage listeners to check out his website and his list of books at joeserio.com. That's joeserio, S-E-R-I-O.com. Joe, thank you so much. What so a fun. privilege this was for us. This was amazing. Thank you for reaching out to us. Thank you, Thank Joe. you. And thank you guys for being so awesome. Hello, friends. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to support this podcast, please go to Apple Podcasts. You can rate and review this episode. Also, for those who have asked us how to financially support, you can go to kevinandsteph.com and order one of our books of You Met Her Where. Thank you so much for listening to Tell Us a Good Story. 